Hey, it's Coach Colette, and I am excited to give you a preview of this Coach Chat episode. When you hear the name Ida B. Wells, what comes to mind? Journalist? Suffragist? Civil rights pioneer? How about dangerous Negro agitator? This was just one of the terms that was used to describe Ida B. Wells back in her day because she was intent on speaking truth to power and holding a mirror to the Black experience of that time. Well, who better to have a conversation about Ida B. Wells than Michelle Duster? She's an author, educator, and public historian who has written, edited, or contributed to numerous articles and 16 books. Her most recent book is Ida B. the Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. Now you may be wondering, what is the inside scoop though? Well, Michelle Duster is the great-grandchild of Ida B. Wells. So in this Coach Chat, you will hear us talk all about Ida B. Wells from both a public and private perspective through the oral history that she gained from her family. Now, Michelle will say that she doesn't try to follow in Ida's footsteps, yet you'll also learn about the work that she is doing to champion racial and gender equity in this country. You'll learn about the mural project that she is working on in Chicago to celebrate Chicago suffragists, and also a sneak peek of her upcoming children's book to help educate younger folks about the amazing contributions that Ida B. Wells made to our country. You'll also hear Michelle talk about the current Black women leaders and revolutionaries who carry on this legacy from Ida of speaking truth to power. So get ready and listen up to today's Coach Chat episode with Michelle Duster. So hello, Start Within Community, and I am very excited for this episode of Coach Chat. As you know, I have with me Michelle Duster, who is an author, educator, public historian, and today we're going to be talking about one of her most recent books, which is Ida B. the Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Colette. Oh, it's my pleasure. And just for our audience sake, the way I connected with you is through our alma mater, Dartmouth. So I'm very excited to also have this additional connection with you in addition to being on the show today. So thanks for, thanks for joining us. So I want to start with A question that I was thinking of as I was going through the excerpt of the book that I saw, who would you say was Ida B. Wells to the world? 
Well, I mean, obviously it depends on the lens that people are looking at her. Um, you know, to certain people, she was, you know, definitely an inspiration. Uh, she was a journalist, a suffragist. She was a, a civil rights pioneer. She did what today is considered social work. She was a community organizer. She was involved in housing. I mean, she did so many different things. She was one of the founders of the NAACP. Um, she was one of the founders of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. So, I mean, in addition to using journalism as a form of activism to basically hold a mirror to this country to explain what this country was to the African-American community, um, she also was involved in a lot of organizing, formal, you know, organizing with, with different organizations. So to some people, she was, like I said, an inspiration, um, you know, somebody who was willing to speak truth to power and do what she could to dismantle a, a racially hierarchical society. But then to some other people, she was a troublemaker. She was, you know, a, a considered to be um, outrageous. And I mean, just some of the words that people use to describe her were very disparaging. So it just depends on what direction people were coming from or what their uh, goals were or their focus. Absolutely, because I saw that, uh, I'll call it subtitle, but the, the dangerous Negro agitator was something that I noticed uh, was a phrase that you share in the book. So that lens that you mentioned is really important depending on how people viewed her, right? Right, absolutely. I mean, she was um, she was deemed to be a, a dangerous Negro agitator. That was one of the ways she was described in an FBI file that I found because she was considered somebody who was criticizing the government. And the way they described her in some of these files, the FBI, was that she was very influential. She had a lot of, um, if you want to call it power, to, to influence um, the African-American community, as they call it, the colored people, you know, as far as encouraging people to speak up for their rights and helping people understand what their rights were and what power they could have as far as fighting, you know, with uh, sort of economic power through the uh, use of boycotts. And, you know, so, so they considered her to be dangerous because she could influence people. Um, there were some other ways she was referred to, <laughs> um, you know, is it a, a mulatress, a scandalous mulatress? And I mean, just all kinds of different ways that people who had a problem with the outspoken, very opinionated, strong-willed uh, person of color and uh, woman had. So it, it was interesting. Um, and I guess that's the, the interesting thing about people, you know, is that even in today's world, you know, you look at somebody like Maxine Waters, for instance, who I did include in my book, um, as somebody who I view as being, as continuing some of the work that my great-grandmother did. Um, so, you know, we could talk about, well, how do people view Maxine Waters, you know? Um, some people love her and some people really have a problem with her. And, and so, you know, my great-grandmother was the same way. Right, I, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, okay, new hashtags we have to create, scandalous mulatras, like t-shirts. <laughs> I wanna be like in on this club, that's amazing. And it is right, that sense of when people are threatened or when people see 
the power that a black woman has to influence, to create change, to generate action, right? Then that's when it seems the negative adjectives get thrown on. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think, I think women experience that more often than men, um, as far as the sort of disparaging kind of language that's used towards women who have strong personalities, have strong opinions, are willing to speak out. Um, because especially women of color, I mean, you know, we're dealing with racism and sexism. And so some of, you know, what my great grandmother dealt with was sexism, I mean, from, from Black men. Um, in addition to dealing with people who are not Black, who had an issue with Black people. Um, so, you know, you kind of, she was kind of fighting two different battles, you know, when it comes to what people think that women's place is in a society. So, I mean, she, she got it from every direction. Um, and one of the things that I, you know, that I hope people take from I to be the queen is how much of what my great grandmother was facing and dealing with, unfortunately, are still challenges you know, um, in today's world. And, you know, can see the parallels between almost a century apart, but also how the work that my great-grandmother did is connected to and has had an impact on what's happening today. Right. That was going to be my question, right? If, if she were alive today, what do you think that she would think of all that's happening in our, in our nation? Well, I can answer what she actually did during her lifetime. <laughs> which was, um, I mean, she was living during a time of incredible uh, level of racial violence. Lynching was rampant during her lifetime and during post-Reconstruction period of our country's history, which was after 1877 when Reconstruction was dismantled. Um, so after the Civil War, there was only a short 12 years, um, 1865 to 1877, uh, when there was a, a lot of progress, actually, um, during that 12-year period of time. But then after everything was sort of reverted to states' rights, then it unleashed, you know, this venom that had been held today a little bit with the northern part of the country or the northern troops sort of having, having some influence on what happened in the former Confederate states. Uh, but, you know, after, after that ended, then it was just mob rule and total just racial terror that was unleashed that and that's the, the period of time when she my great-grandmother was an adult and I think we're seeing some of that again when it comes to this this reverting back to states having control over their voting rights you know after the 2013 Supreme Court ruling that lifted the sort of federal oversight of of states having with their voting rules that were sort of supervised, I guess, by the federal government. Now we're seeing the results of that, this rollback. And so that's, again, why I'm, I'm hoping that people can see parallels um, because I actually see these parallels and I see it's not quite history totally repeating itself, but there is a pattern of Black progress followed by backlash that has occurred over these close to 160 years since the Civil War ended. And that's one of the reasons why I included the 400-year timeline in Ida Be the Queen, because I wanted people to see this pattern. You know, so it's unfortunate, but it's almost predictable what's happening now. 
Right. And I think that is very key because there are people that will say, oh, well, why are we still talking about this? Or, you know, that was years ago. But if you aren't aware of the history and the cycles and the patterns that do repeat, right, then you think, oh, well, people are just being upset about this thing, right? This thing is this hundreds of years of journey that we are going through. And I think it is very great that you point that out in the book. I want to switch a little bit to ask you the question. So we, we looked external. Who or what was Ida B. Wells to you as her descendant? Well, Ida B. Wells is my great-grandmother. Um, she was my, Ida had four children and my grandmother was her youngest child. Um, and so she's my grandmother's mother, my father's grandmother. And so to me, she was obviously an ancestor, mm -hmm. um, but I never met her. I mean, she died 32 years before I was born. In fact, my father never met her because he was born a year after she died. So in addition to her being a historical figure, she obviously is a part of my family, but I learned about her almost through sort of oral history. And I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. I knew her very well, uh, but I, I think my family, in my opinion, is no different than most people's families that I, you know, talk to about this type of stuff. A lot of our grandparents' generation, they grew up in a different time than, than our time right now. And so this sort of oversharing that we're dealing with in today's world, it was not part of my grandmother's reality. And so she was very careful and I think very deliberate about what she shared about her mother versus what she decided to keep for herself. Um, so there, unfortunately, are a lot of information about my great-grandmother that people want me to know um, <laughs> that I don't know because I think my grandmother chose to not share certain things. So I can go, only go by what she did share, which was mostly values, you know, that we all make sure that we have the best education that we can have um, because we do live in a society where we as African-Americans are held to a different standard than the quote majority of our country. And we are judged. Um, I mean, it's just a fact, you know, we are judged um, by different standards in pretty much every way. So educationally, we have to do more, be more um, in order to be regarded in a certain way. Obviously, from my great-grandmother's time before and after, you know, we're held to different standards when it comes to criminal justice system when it comes to civil rights, when it comes to housing and income levels and healthcare disparities, all of these things. And so I grew up knowing that as an African-American, there were just different ways that I needed to navigate this society than I would say mostly, you know, white people who might've had the same, a similar kind of background. Got it. Got it. And do you feel that she in any way influenced any of your career decisions, given the work that you do, the writing and the historical research that you do? Actually, I really try to not follow in her footsteps. Interesting. <laughs> um, okay. I really did because in doing work that's even remotely similar to what my great grandmother did, um, there's an inevitable comparison that people have and expectations that people have of me that are different than what I have of myself. And so it's a really tall order 
to, to try to live up to other people's expectations of me being living up to somebody who was a historical figure um, who had global impact. And I tried my best to not follow in that footsteps because I wanted to have my own identity and not constantly be compared and fall short um, to what somebody else did in her lifetime, a hundred years before me. But I guess I was just naturally based on my personality, wanting to work in, in a field that dealt with communication and images. And I wanted to make an impact on how African-Americans are portrayed in the media. Um, and now I've kind of segued into even public spaces when it comes to public history projects, because actually, um, maybe you can relate to this, Colette. I mean, one of the things that, that um, sparked my interest was some of the experiences I had at Dartmouth, because, I mean, I'm from Chicago, and, you know, Dartmouth is um, in New Hampshire, and I came in contact with people, some of my classmates who had ideas about what Chicago was like, a lot of assumptions of what they believed my background was or what some of my experiences were. And they interacted with me in certain ways with that sort of assumptions in their head. And it just really struck me. I was like, why do you think certain things about me based on the fact that I'm from Chicago, even though you've never met me and you've never been to Chicago. Um, <laughs> and so it just made me realize that they're getting certain um, ideas or certain attitudes based on images, based on media images, based on what they see in the news, based on what they see on television or in movies. And so I just felt very strongly, I wanted to be involved in having some kind of impact on the images and some of the messaging that people are constantly bombarded with about who we are as a people, where we're from, and what kind of environments we live in. It's very skewed towards the negative. And, um, and I think it impacts not only how people interact with each other one-on-one, -on -one, but I think ultimately it, it impacts policy. Absolutely. And yes, and I can relate. I'm from the Bronx, grew up in the Bronx in here in New York City, and definitely had some experiences during my freshman year of people making assumptions about where I was from in the Bronx uh, without having been to New York City, only having seen maybe a movie or two, or had these perceptions of what, what my neighborhood, quote unquote, was like. So I can definitely relate to that. And I remember being a little bit of a troublemaker myself during that time and being, you know, it almost would play with that perception because knowing that that was not my personal experience, but like, okay, if that's how you want to perceive me, then yeah, let's, let's play with that a little bit. And it would be interesting to watch people's reactions and, and at what point they would realize that I was making it up, right? <laughs> that I wasn't speaking about my true life, but I was just speaking off of some movie, like, oh yeah, I grew up on that street. Did you remember when you saw that? Remember the crack house two doors down? Yeah, that was where. I... And you could just watch people like looking at me like, is she, is that really true? Is she making that up? So uh, I can definitely relate did, to that. I did the same thing. <laughs> I would just start just making stuff up, just the most outrageous thing I could think of, you know, and just see if people actually believed it, you know, I mean, we could go off on that, but I would just say crazy, outrageous things. And I'm like, 
And if they said, really, really, I'm like, oh my God, they actually think, they really think that this is how people live? <laughs> exactly. I mean, and it's interesting because tying it back to what we were talking about earlier around sort of disparaging remarks and, and uh, adjectives, you know, for Ida B. Wells or for, for Black women in general, then the opposite is, but then if you get defensive, right, then it's like, oh, you're being sensitive. Like, I didn't mean it that way, right? I was just curious as to what, you know, your experience was. So I think we often get that it's that double-edged sword, right? No matter how you react, there there's going to be some some way to sort of push it back on us. Absolutely. And we're always put in a position of having to educate people, um, you know, about who we are as human beings versus that just being a given. <laughs> right, right. And I'm sure, obviously, in your research for the book, there were these types of images that were, because during that time, right, when we're talking about how Black people were depicted in sort of newspapers, obviously there wasn't social media like you were saying then, but there was still this ability to share these stereotypes very widely. Is, is that true? Absolutely. I mean, you think about, well, I mean, there were minstrel shows, there was vaudeville, there was obviously newspapers that portrayed um, African-Americans in very negative ways, you know, and if you even look at some of the cartoons that were created during that time, I mean, they're, they're extremely offensive today. Um, and so obviously they were at that, at that time as well. And so, yes, there was no social media during my great grandmother's time that believe it or not, some listeners, there was no social media during my time. Um, in college. I mean, this is sort of a newer thing. Um, so there were obviously other ways that people found to, you know, just create these really insulting, negative sort of pictorials of who, you know, African-Americans were. And they were very deliberate, um, you know, very deliberately insulting. And in a way to, to dehumanize us as a people in order to justify the level of violence that was uh, being in, inflicted on our communities. Because if people think you're not really human or you don't have the same feelings, or you don't have the same rights, then it's easier for them to justify to themselves doing some of the things that were, were being done during my great grandmother's time. I mean, literally like burning people alive and, you know, having, I mean, people, they were spectacles. Um, where sometimes up to 10,000 people would go specifically knowing that they're going to see somebody killed. And so what does it take in order for people to think that's an okay thing to do? You know, they have to somehow believe in them within their own head that first of all, that it's not a person that like them, and then somehow they deserve it. Again, I, I, I hope that people will get from the book that the same kind of mentality exists today that justifies shooting or, or, or just say arresting a six-year-old. I mean, really, you know, why do you think that a six-year-old doesn't have the same grace? Why don't you look at that person as a, as a child that is just acting out? Why do you, you know, so the, these kind of attitudes are what's behind the level of violence that somehow people justify in, the, in their own head that it's okay. Um, and so that, that's what I've been interested in. And that's my common theme through all of the work that I've done is figuring out ways to dismantle this 
negative messaging about who we are as a community and at the same time uplifting the positive for ourselves. I mean, we need to see ourselves in spaces that are in a positive light. We need to be able to celebrate ourselves, our own accomplishments at the same time that we're sort of educating other people. Um, I think it's, I think representation is very important, you know, for, for little black and brown children to turn on the TV and somebody who looks like them, go to a movie and see somebody who looks like them, who's not, you know, being tormented, but they're actually just being carefree and just a normal kind of life, you know? So I just think that's what I care about. And that's what I've been trying to do. Got it. And tell us a little bit more about that kind of work. I know perhaps this book is part of it, but what else are you working on in that vein? Well, I was instrumental in having a major street in Chicago named Ida B. Wells Drive, which is a very big accomplishment. It's the first major street in downtown Chicago ever in the history of the city to be named after any woman or any person of color. And I I think it is a big thing um, for people to be able to see the name of a woman um, and see the name of a black person. And that's, she happens to be both. I think subliminally, you know, just hearing the name over and over and over again will make it normal to have a a black woman celebrated in that way. I've been involved forever now, only 13 years to have a monument created in honor of my great grandmother. Again, the, the number of monuments in this country that represent or celebrate black women is less than 3%. (laughs) Um, And so we are so underrepresented. And then of women in general, it's less than 10%. So we as females just need to be seen. We need to be celebrated in public spaces. Um, So it's not, you know, something that's so unusual and rare. And so I I feel that what I'm doing, yes, it's about my great-grandmother. That's what I'm starting with. But to me, it's to start a dialogue, it's to start a movement, you know, if you will, of, of people seeing like, wow, this is the first monument I've ever seen of a woman. Why aren't there more? And, and so I'm pushing the envelope in Chicago and in Illinois. I'm working on a mural project of suffragists, of um, Chicagoland suffragists, which will be the first, again, major outdoor tribute to suffragists. So they'll include 10 women. Again, it will be the first of, you know, just to see women's faces, you know, see women's forms in these outdoor spaces. And so there's such a huge disparity that I just feel it's important to kind of chip away and, you know, to make it slowly but surely make it more equitable. Um, I'm also involved in a couple of film projects (laughs) um, that are about Ida, but there's another one that's about the riot that took place in Elaine, Arkansas. There was a huge race riot, if you want to call it that, it's more like a massacre uh, that happened in Elaine, Arkansas in 1919, which some sharecroppers and Ida wrote about. She wrote a whole pamphlet about it. And um, so there's a documentary film being created about that and uh, several other projects that I'm working on, a couple of children's books. Um, that include several historical figures. And so that's my way, you know, one project at a time to just make our, our stories more. I want to move us from the margins to the mainstream. Right. Uh, and, I, and I do think that we still are in the margins. 
Yes. And it, it is interesting because every time there's anything where you or any of us say it's the first, right? And then you have to look and it's 2021 and you still are saying this is the first monument for, you know, all of those things that you mentioned. And that will likely, I guess, be beyond even 2021 by the time they're all completed. So it just reminds us of how, even how far that we've come, but how far we still have yet to go. And I, I love that concept of moving it from the marg margins to, to the mainstream. And do you think then that some of the social media or some of these other tools that we have now can help in that effort that didn't exist back in your great grandmother's time? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I think social media obviously is you know powerful today. Um, it makes it possible for information to be transpired very quickly um, across a large span of geography, but everybody's not on social media. And the issue you sometimes in today's world is that people's attention span are very short. And, and so in a way that's part of social media too. I mean, if people tweet something and then they, you know, five minutes later, there's something else new. And so how do you break through that? The difference between our time and my great grandmother's time is the amount of information that people are bombarded with today. In a way, I mean, obviously it's a great thing. It's sort of democratized, but at the same time, there's so much, the volume is just unbelievable. And so it's like, how do you cut through, you know, all of the different messaging um, that people are, are being hit with? Um, and, and so that's the challenge, you know, the pros and cons to both. And so, you know, with my great grandmother's time, I mean, the, the, especially when she was growing up, the illiteracy rate was very high because you're coming right out of slavery and it was illegal for enslaved people to become educated. So like she even commented about people, somebody who was literate would read the newspaper to other people, you know, so there was a little bit more of an oral dissemination of, of news. But then there wasn't as many newspapers and obviously didn't travel as quickly. So you have less um, sort of competition for your attention. And so people could maybe focus <laughs> on, you know, on, on an issue a little more than now. We are, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, you know, in some situations to try to stay focused. I mean, you need to look at the news now, like some of the cable news. Everything is breaking news every 10 minutes. There's something else breaking news. So, so the level of depth of, you know, sort of investigative journalism that my great-grandmother was doing, there's not as much now as there was during her time because everything is just so fast. Your mental health is essential to your overall health and well-being. Living a healthy lifestyle and including mental health tools to help you thrive may not seem easy, but it can be achieved if you gradually make small changes and build on your successes. Seeking help to improve your mental health is a sign of strength not weakness, and I would love to help you do it. You can visit my website, startwithincoaching.com. At the top, click Start Here, 
so you can schedule your complimentary activation call. We can talk all about what's going on in your life right now, where you are in your mental health journey, and where you would like to be. So go to startwithincoaching.com, click start here to start your journey within. So how are you getting people excited, energized, mobilized about this work and staying engaged and informed? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, part of what I'm doing is, you, is I'm sure hopefully people have um, seen is that I'm working in different mediums. <laughs> I'm working across different mediums um, because I, I'm hoping they'll all sort of work together. So if somebody sees the name of the street, then they'll whip out their cell phone and Google who is Ida B. Wells if they never heard of her before. And, you know, they can read articles that are online. And then maybe when people are just walking on a, a tour or something, then they'll see a monument. And the, on the monument, there will be inscriptions of who she was. And then they might be curious to read more about her so then they can read a book. Um, and so, you know, or if they read the book and then they say, oh, I want to know more about her. And then they'll know who she is when they see the street. And so there's multiple, I'm just hoping that they all complement each other. And, and through all of these different mediums, people not only learn about her, but her contemporaries and connect how the work that she did is being carried on today. So that when they learn about her, they'll say, oh, she's like Stacey Abrams. Or Stacey Abrams is doing some of the work that Ida was doing when it came to registering people to vote. I mean, that's what she did with the Alpha Suffrage Club in 1913. She formed the block system to get people registered to vote. That's what Stacey Abrams is doing on a bigger scale, you know, but it's the same type of work. Yeah. I, and I love that. And as you mentioned earlier, Maxine Waters, like I love that you are making those parallels for people to recognize the, the current generation or the, the current Black women leaders that we have in this sphere um, now, in addition to um, those that were part of her generation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the book, I included several people that to me are continuing the work that, that Ida did in different arenas, because obviously uh, Maxine Waters, you know, speak, speaking truth to power, but then I included, say, for instance, Colin Kaepernick, who is protesting alone. Um, so because, because Ida did protest alone, um, when it came to the, the soldiers in 1917 who were hanged and or in prison because they, they were just charged with a mutiny. And Ida decided to create buttons to uh, recognize them as murdered Negro soldiers. So she, was, she literally was a protest of one <laughs> um, because of that. And for that, she was investigated by the FBI and they threatened her with treason because they said she was criticizing the government. And so in today's world, you know, what was Colin Kaepernick doing? He was protesting alone. And as a result, we all know, you know, he, he's not been able to work in his profession. Um, the same thing happened with Muhammad Ali for a period of time when he protested the Vietnam War. You know, so I included a lot of different people that are working in different ways that were 
similar to my great grandma here. Um, another example is um, John H. Johnson, who started the Johnson Publishing Company as a way to take control over our narrative, which my great grandmother was, she took control over our narrative, our perspective of what was going on during her time, because she was a co-owner of several newspapers. You know, so she, she did a lot of different things during her lifetime, and there's no one person um, who's kind of doing what, all of what she was doing. So I chose different people who are doing parts of what she was doing to, to hopefully illustrate even to a younger generation how they can themselves, you know, make an impact on our world and hopefully get some ideas even from the book on how they can make their voices heard in different ways. I think that's really important because even for myself, I think sometimes when I think about all that's happening, it can seem so overwhelming and so much. And then I can feel like as one person, how is it that I can ever make an impact or make a difference? And so it's great to have those reminders and examples of people that in their sphere, in their world, in their field, in their industry, like they took a stand or a knee. And, and how much of a difference that made uh, or, or, and is still making. So thank you. Thank you for that. And I love that. I meant to say it when you said it before. I love that you're also working on children's books, because again, how do we continue to tell these stories to even younger generations of people? Yes. Yes. I've, I have a children's book coming out next year in January about Ida, <laughs> but I have another one coming out in 2023. And I've already written, co-wrote one that's about, that includes several different historical figures. And there's another one. I'm working on so many different things. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, but, but, but with the whole goal of giving, giving a younger generation a sense of pride in who we are and seeing role models, seeing themselves, but then also sort of validating ourselves to, to people our, our age and up. And then just adding to the representation of what this, and, and, and filling in the blanks of what this country is. You know, who, who contributed to the United States of America? There's so, there's so much omission. All of the different ways that people get information, we are underrepresented. <laughs> and, and so that's why I feel it's important for there to be multi-pronged approach because people learn information in different ways. And, and I just feel that the representation is important in all of the different spaces. Absolutely. Thank you. And I, it sounds like we're going to have to have you back on the show to talk about some of these other amazing projects <laughs> that you are working on. So I'm excited for that. Uh, with all that's going on, I wanted to ask you, how is it that you keep yourself functioning and thriving? How do you maintain your own health and well-being? That is actually um, something I, I really do try to focus on because, I mean, I, re I recognize that, you know, my own personal health, mental and physical health is important for me to be able to do the work that I, that I do because I can't, you know, I can't be effective if I'm not actually functioning, you know, so I am trying to be mindful of realizing when I do need to rest. I've been, it's hard, you know, during the whole quarantine kind of thing to exercise as much as I would like to. I had gotten into a routine, you know, pre-COVID. I had all these classes I was going to that I really enjoyed and then everything shut down. So I've been doing my best to take walks and do hand weights and things like that to, you know, just try to keep moving. 
and then I, I started watching stand-up comedy, <laughs> um, you know, just to, I mean, trying to be more mindful of doing it on a regular basis because it's good to just kind of get out of my head because a lot of work that I'm involved in is heavy dealing with lynching and riots and all of these sort of traumatizing experiences. And so I've realized that I need to, on my free time, have some levity. I mean, I also spend time with friends and other, other ways that I just have outlets. That's so ironic because I have probably watched more stand-up comedy in the last year than I probably did in the last 10 years. So it is interesting. Although then sometimes, depending on who the comic is, sometimes I, I leave with even more heady because it's like, you know, a lot of the good comics, they make you think, right? It's not just about funny haha. So sometimes I'm like, yeah, that's hilarious. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, wait, I need to Google that. Like they were talking about something real that happened, right? So it's, it, it sometimes it's, a, it depends on who the comic is and what their, their repertoire is about. But that's funny that you, you went that way too. So I've been doing the same thing. And one of the questions that I ask all of my guests is what does start within mean to you? Well, I mean, kind of following up on what we were just talking about, you know, how they say people always use this analogy of what they say on airplanes, you know, put your, your mask on first before you can help somebody else. And I think that's what with start within means. Like you have to be able to be the best person you are in order to produce the best work you can. And so if you're starting on half full, then you're not going to be as effective as you can be. So you just have to be mindful of what your own level of energy is, both mentally and physically. Because I mean, we're living it. I'm sure, you know, we, we've all felt different times of like, this is a really, really tough time to live through. But I've been around a little while. <laughs> and I do believe that what we're living through right now is, is very challenging. Part of it could be because of social media, as I said before, like we're being bombarded with information from every direction. It's hard to get any, any time um, without these messages. And so it takes effort to kind of shut down and recharge. And, I, and I, I try my best to do that, you know, without feeling like, oh my God, I'm missing on something. <laughs> you can't, you have, you can't be on all the time. You have to have, you have to be able to recharge yourself. Yeah, I think, I think you made really great points there. And I think that sense of how is it that we intentionally unplug while still staying informed, I find that to be a challenge. How about you? Yeah, kind of going back to what I was saying before, I mean, as far as breaking news every 10 minutes, it, it always seems like we're in a crisis, you know, and, and, I, and I get why, you know, the, the, the media outlets feel the need to have this sense of urgency and always shock value, you know, but it, it, as a consumer and as just a normal citizen in our country, sometimes it's just overwhelming. And I think have to have an attitude like, you know what? I'm probably going to miss something and that's okay because I can't, I can't watch this anymore. I can't, I mean, I just need to like, you listen to your body and when you start feeling tense, on edge, irritable, you need to have some downtime. Absolutely. Yes. And particularly with footage that, you know, that are, that's being shown with body cams. Like, I think there are so many things, right? Like 
we can stay informed without necessarily having it like up close and personal all of the time. Thank you. So, so I know that you're working on a lot and I would love for our listeners to be able to learn more. Uh, I know they can get the book pretty much, I'm sure wherever books are sold, but where else can they learn about you and all of your other projects? Yeah, people can learn about the projects that I'm working on from my website, mldwrite, which is W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. Absolutely. And we'll make sure to share that in the show notes. And if any of our listeners are in Chicago, is there anything in particular that they can look out for, for some of the um, other projects that you're working on? Yeah, the monument, the Ida B. Wells Monument will be installed sometime this summer. So they can be on the lookout for that. I'm sure there'll be announcements or press releases when we have a final date. And then the suffrage mural that I'm working on will be completed. If, if everything goes right, <laughs> um, it will be completed in the late, late summer, early fall. So both of these, they'll be within a couple of months of each other. Fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm excited. I guess I haven't, I haven't been on an airplane in over a year, but perhaps when I do get to Chicago, by the time I get to Chicago, maybe I'll get to see both of those, uh, both the monument and the mural. I'm excited for that. And uh, I hope that those of you that are living in Chicago and are listening will keep, keep your eyes and ears peeled for, for those two projects. Uh, thank you, Michelle, sure. for, for sharing your insights with our audience. And we'll be also sure to share the link to the book in the show notes so that people can buy the book. So thank you so much for your time and insight today. Thank you. And just so people know, um, I mean, whenever these projects are going to be finished, I will be tweeting about it. <laughs> um, ah. So people follow me on Twitter at Michelle Duster. That'll probably be up even faster than a newspaper article. And we plan on streaming the unveiling as well. So people from outside of Chicago can see the ceremony. Um, so if you, if you follow me on, on social media, you'll, you'll know when the actual events will take place. That's awesome. So we'll include the link to your Twitter as well. So you're on social media. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And on, on my website, I have the links to the social media on, on the website too. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for all of the work that you are doing. And I can definitely say that you and your work uh, stand out in, in its own right. So I'm, I'm excited and I'm proud to have had this conversation with you today. Well, thank you, Colette. And, um, Hopefully your listeners um, with Start Within podcast are inspired not only by the book, but by what they, they themselves can contribute to our country because it, it takes collective action. It absolutely does. So thank you so much. All right. <laughs> Take care. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't already subscribed, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. You also can connect with me on Instagram at coach underscore Colette for more inspiration on personal growth and wellness. 
Want to help us create more great content and host more live podcast events? Then join our Start Within tribe and support this podcast with a small donation to help sustain our future episodes. Visit anchor.fm slash coach hyphen Colette slash support to get started today. You know, this podcast is truly my passion project and I really appreciate your continued support. Get ready to start within to finish strong.